Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies. Even right now, you might want to say, God, I give you my body. This is going to be important because I think we underestimate the value of the bodies that God has given us. Let the sacrifice be holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because this is what we're going to navigate today. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. The same apostle Paul said, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say foods for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know? Now, by the way, this is a refrain he uses multiple times here. He's trying to correct their pattern of thinking. Do you not know that your bodies, talking about bodies again, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Everyone say nunca. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. For all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So I'm about to preach a message that uh, potentially is going to have us lose people over that this is uh, this week and next week is going to be some points of controversy. I am trying to respond faithfully, scripturally to questions you guys have asked me. Hey, Pastor Mike, is, are you sure sex before marriage is, is that wrong? What does God actually say about sexual morality? What about LGBTQ? What about living with somebody? Is it okay to be with someone if you know you're going to marry them? What's a piece of paper? Why does God care about who I sleep with anyway? Why can't people stay off my body? So a lot of the questions that people have asked me, today I want to talk about navigating sexuality. Navigating sexuality. Probably no deeper root in our culture than this. So I'm going to pray very sincerely, and I'm not going to try to be offensive, but I am going to try to be faithful. I have very seriously consider not preaching this today or next week and just saying, I'll just do like a Wednesday night thing and, and maybe post something on YouTube so I'll, only 20% of you will watch it or something. And the Lord has not let me do that. So, so I'm going to go ahead and preach it. Amen. Well, you're saying that now. <laughs> Lord, help in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. How do we navigate sexuality? Uh, there's probably no subject matter that's more difficult or volatile or polarizing or painful or confusing. And make sure you guys give me my timer up there because this will be the longest sermon you've heard me preach in a while. I remember when I was a kid, I still remember when I had my first exposure to pornography. I was uh, living across the street from a kid who had magazines. 
uh, that were hidden. And I know a lot of you don't know what a porn magazine is, but uh, some of us remember the day when, when pornography was in still shots. And this kid invited several of us over, and we went there. And I was, I don't know, probably fifth or sixth grade, and I see this. And man, there were just like these chemicals and these thoughts and feelings going off inside of me that I had never felt before. I had never felt the kind of stuff I was feeling when I saw these pictures. I, I, I wanted to look away, and I did look away, but I look back, and I'm curious, and I'm, I'm, I have all sorts of things happening inside of me, and I'm, my hormones are popping, and I don't know what in the world to think about this, but I said, we shouldn't be looking at this. This is wrong. I said something that was objecting, letting it be kind of known I'm objecting to this. And that was it for that day. But the next time I saw something, it wasn't quite as objectionable, although I still put up a little bit of a fight. And then by the time after that that I saw something, it was, it was a little bit less. And, and I remember talking to somebody that might have been religious in some way, and they were no help at all. Like the religious person, of course, you feel weird and dirty for saying anything, but you also feel there's, a, there's an excitement and there's, there, there's an awareness that I felt like I had never had. I felt like something had been taken off of my eyes that maybe had, had been kept from me before. I started looking at females differently than I had ever looked at them before, you know, kind of imagining and thinking about the sort of things that were there. But it was, it was strange and it was, it was confusing and it was becoming more and more normal. One of Satan's lies is to tell us that all sins are the same. I hope you know that when Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, it's like committing murder. I hope you understand murder is different than actually being angry. And according to the passage we just read, do you not know, he says, don't, don't you get it? The one who sins sexually sins in a way that that you do not sin any other way. And by the way, today is going to be like a PG-13 kind of day. So we do have a kids' ministry where they are doing a different sermon than I, than, than I am right now, just, just to warn you. I, I'm, I would, might be okay with my kids hearing a lot of what I'm saying, but I think that there is a reality that one of Satan's lies has been that all sins are the same, and yet this passage tells us very clearly that sexual sins are different. Sex shame is heavier, the pain is more acute, the issues leave us more wounded. Today I bring us to a hard conversation. It touches our identity, our bodies, our body image, issues of loneliness, confusion, cravings, faith, doubts, wounds. If you are here and you are struggling with the church or you're struggling with your sexuality, or you've been wounded by religious people, or you've been abused by somebody, or something has gone on inside of you that's left you angry, or confused, or, or vengeful, or ashamed, if you're struggling with your gender, or maybe guilt, or, or you don't even want to think about your past, all I want to say to you right now is you are not alone. I kind of wish I could just Ask everybody in here, who has some serious pain, struggle, trauma, guilt, regrets, and have everybody raise one or two hands. And I, I just want you to know, if you're struggling with any of these things, you're in a room or you're watching online with people that, that relate. Some of our crew down in Greenhouse Orlando right now, you're sitting in a room with some other people that, that we, we, we can all relate to some angle on this, and, and maybe the church has been a place of, of all sorts of 
hurt to you, and I'm, I'm very sorry for that. And I mean, I'm even impressed that you would, I mean, a lot of you have known I was going to be speaking about sexuality today and, and next week, and for you to even come, I mean, there's just a lot of courage in that. So what we're going to try to do for these next couple of weeks is to navigate sexuality, LGBTQ, gay marriage, things like this, with Jesus and with his words and with his people and with his spirit, and we're going to ask him to navigate us. Here's, there's a lot, I got to say a lot today, and I'm going to have to go fast. There's a lot to cover. It's, good, it's a different kind of a Sunday, but it's all going to be wrapped up in this one thought, and it's this. The world's pattern of sex is deforming. The biblical pattern of sex is transforming and redeeming. The world's pattern of sex is deforming, deforming. The biblical pattern of sex is transforming and redeeming. When I was in college, I, I learned to cook, and I did most of my cooking in a microwave, and I used a lot of Tupperware. And occasionally, I would take my Tupperware, and I was cooking something on the stove, like mac and cheese, and I would have my Tupperware plasticware that was there. And I remember, you know, as a college student, you don't have a ton of money, so you've got what you've got, you know, for that year or whatever. And I remember one of my Tupperware plasticware whatever containers, it got melted on the stovetop. It got deformed. It was no longer as good as, as I was hoping, and it kind of deformed up. And I remember trying because the, the nature of a plasticware is it, it creates a vacuum seal because it has like a, you know, it, it snaps into place or whatever, and, and it and didn't quite work anymore. And so there was a, I could still sort of use it, but not really, and the stuff would leak and whatever because it was now deformed. I, I'm going to try to help us understand because I don't think we believe, I don't think my culture has taught me to believe that the cultures or the world's pattern of sex is deforming. When we read in Romans 12, when it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed. As a shepherd, I'm, I'm telling you, I have seriously thought, I mean, you know, I've, I've tried to find ways to say, let's not talk about this, at least on a Sunday morning, and I do not feel that liberty, and I'm just, I'm telling you that the world's pattern of sex is deforming. Well, let me kind of break down the world's pattern. One part of the world's pattern is the religious. The religious approach to sex is useless. I was reading this week about, about how um, throughout the church history, there were, sex was seen as like a necessary evil, or it's something with your bodies, and the bodies are not good, and, and your spirit is good, but your body's not. So literally in church history, there's been moments where sex was forbidden on Thursdays because that's when Jesus got betrayed. Sex was forbidden on Fridays because that's when Jesus got crucified. Sex was forbidden on Saturdays to honor Mother Mary. Sex was forbidden on Sundays to honor the Lord's resurrection or some of the other saints. Well, that only leaves three days. And then there was a lot of other times, like, you know, sex is forbidden when there's a lot of other things that happen. I forget how many days of the year it turned out to be, but it ended up being the majority of your life you could not have sex and be okay with the church. And yet, I need you to understand, that is the religious approach. That is not the biblical approach. The very first day of human creation, God says, I give you dominion over everything, be fruitful and multiply. Let me put that in modern English. He, God says, I'm giving you, you guys go be in charge and go have sex. That is a good first day on the job. You're in charge and I'm releasing you to go and do this. God was not surprised by the pleasure. The human body is made for this. A, a woman's body in particular is made where there are, there are all sorts of nerve endings that have no function except for pleasure. It is clear that this is a gift from God that was invented by God, thought up by God. 
Praise God. Amen. Which is why the religious approach to sex is deforming because it takes a gift and turns it into something else. That's the first point. Number two, the cultural approach to sex is toxic. I'm going to have to do a little bit of homework for us here, but the, this has been a generation of unprecedented change in many areas. We've got technology and iPhones and artificial intelligence and globalization, but there's been probably no area in human existence that has been more changed than sex. They tell us that there's really been two shifts in human history, sexually, one of which would be like the idea of, of when, when humans are, you know, really, you know, many, many thousands and thousands of years ago had certain exclusivity ideas and whatnot. And um, this is what an evolutionist would say. Okay, a Christian would say something otherwise. Uh, or, a, a, you know, someone that maybe thinks that God has spoken earlier on would say that there was marriage going on earlier. But the second shift, they would say, sociologists would say, evolutionary biologists would say has happened within the last 50 to 60 years. It's been in the light of what's called the sexual revolution. Many of you that were alive remember there was something called a Jesus revolution where a lot of hippies and druggies turned to Jesus. What they tell us is that the sexual revolution effectively snuffed out the Jesus revolution. That the church was not prepared. The church was ready for many, many things. It was not ready for the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution brought a change where sex that had been connected to many other things now shifted, where sex now was disconnected from, number one, marriage. Traditionally, mar that, uh, at least in, in Western civilization, sex was connected to, you should, everyone didn't, but you should wait until you're married. It got disconnected from marriage. It became disconnected from people. During the sexual revolution, the idea was you've got this, this need for pleasure, you've got these needs, and so you can meet those needs and you don't need people to do so. Right now, interestingly, sexual activity is in a steep decline, especially with young people, and especially in some cultures like Japan, other nations. Um, sex is in massive decline, and one of the big reasons is why go out on a date with someone that you've got to go spend money when you can get all your needs met on the swipe of a phone? Why all the drama of having to sit there and act like you're interested in what someone's talking about at dinner all night when you can get your needs met in less than five minutes? And why go spend hours or months cultivating a relationship, or someone expecting gifts, or all the other stuff, when an image, or an app, or right now they got robots, There's, the technology is booming for sexual robots to meet all of your needs, and they never talk back, and they don't ask anything in return. Sex during the sexual revolution became detached from, uh, from people. By the way, one of the effects of this has been that we humans are getting worse and worse at just basic things like flirting, okay? Some people are really good at flirting, like they can flirt on a phone, but they don't even know how to flirt in person anymore. And I could tell you many females in our church have said, can we just have a sermon that teaches guys how to approach women again? Because they are clearly clueless. And then people get married, and then and husbands and wives will have stuff going on, and someone will, they, when they do start to get physically involved, many people are saying, wait, why were you thinking I would like that? And because people are being catechized sexually on pornography, which is not teaching you what actual humans might want. It's showing you what paid performers act like they like. And so we've got an entire generation that's now been trained on porn, and then we've taken very aggressive things, violent things, demeaning things, being speaking down to people, dehumanizing things, assuming that's what people want or what they would like, 
And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that would just say, why would my wife think I would like that? Why would my husband think I would like that? Why would my girlfriend think I would like that? Why would my boyfriend think I would like that? And the answer is because all they did was watch Euphoria. All they did was is, is watch an app. All they did was get onto some kind of a, you know, some sort of a website where they're watching this stuff modeled. And it sure looked like they were enjoying that. Unbeknownst to them, that was either a paid performer or a human trafficked victim that's having to act like they like this or else they're going to get beat up. The cultural approach to sex is toxic. It has disconnected from marriage, from, from people. It's disconnected sex from rules. The idea has been no one should be able to tell me what to do with my body. I am the instigator. I am, my own, I am creating my own reality, and I am who I say that I am, and I've got the rules. I will be my own determiner of that which is right or wrong. It's been disconnected increasingly from the male-female bond, and ultimately it's been disconnected from love itself. At one time, it would have been said that we're making love. Now someone would say that we're hooking up. The hookup culture is, is a brand new thing. The sexual revolution has been defined as the destigmatization and demystification of non... And make sure you put this up on the screen for me. The sexual revolution is the destigmatization, meaning it's don't, don't stigmatize it, and the demystification of non-marital sex in the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic, here's the key word, recreation, in which anything goes, and this is, the, this is la única, la única cosa, nuestra cultura, the only thing in our culture that you would say is off limits, as long as it's consenting adults. There is but one boundary marker on sexuality, at least in American culture right now, that you would say, which would be consent. Something is sexually immoral, if it's not consensual. But as long as it's consensual, it's okay. Which is why people are so confused on a week like this one where an NBA uh, coach has been suspended for a consensual relationship and people are like, wait, what's, what meaneth this? So the cultural approach to sex is toxic. Part of, we see this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, it says, I have the right to do anything. Part of this is seen as sex as a right. Now, I need to break this down for us and, and try to track with me. I think when I first became a Christian several years ago, the idea about the Christian ethic of sex, and, and by the way, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to read to you C.S. Lewis's. This is what C.S. Lewis, how he would describe. C.S. Lewis says that the Christian ethic of sexuality is the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner, or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and contrary to our instincts and what we feel is natural, that obviously either Christianity is wrong, or our sexual instinct, as it is now, has gone wrong, one or the other. What C.S. Lewis, what the Bible would say, is that our, our cravings have, have actually gone wrong. But many people, so the culture in right now would say, we would see sex as a right. So when I first became a Christian, when, when someone heard the C.S. Lewis ethic or the biblical ethic, which is essentially any sex outside of marriage would be seen as, as off limits, out of bounds. The, years ago, that would, I think the notion would be, well, that's retrograde or that is naive or that's, that's a cute old school. You guys are so old fashioned. It used to be seen as old fashioned. That is not the case now. It is now more like what Paul's writing to in the Roman culture, American culture is where I think Roman culture was in the first century, 
which now we would say, if you try to put any kind of bounds on my sexuality, it's not just that you're old-fashioned, you are now seen as dangerous. The Freudian idea about sexuality would be that any forms of suppressing or repressing your sexuality is a suppression or repression of who you are. And because our culture has done a swap where we, at one time there was an idea that there was an infallible truth or an infallible word of God or something like that. The only infallibility in American culture now is whatever I feel like I am on the inside. So if I feel like I'm a dog, woof, woof. If I feel like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a fox, I, I don't know what the fox says, but you know what I'm saying. Like, so if, if I don't, it's, it's going to come down to the infallibility now is I need to be authentic to myself and in generations past, integrity was seen as getting your life to line up to ultimate objective truth. Now, integrity is seen as getting your life to line up to what you feel is true inside of you, which is interesting because that may change on a monthly basis or an annual basis. And, and what do you do when your thinking butts up against someone else's thinking, which is, of course, why consensuality comes into play. But this idea, so the idea that full sexual expression has now been, the, the idea that I should be able to do anything I want to do sexually has now been framed not as a moral issue, but it's become a justice issue in the sense that if you claim I should not be able to do that, you are an aggressor against my person and now you are an aggressor that is committing an injustice. Meaning, the sexual ethic that C.S. Lewis or the Bible puts forth is not only seen as naive, it is now seen as an injustice that's committing a danger to my very existence. This is the idea that sexuality is, is a right. One, one writer said, he calls it expressive individualism, that all of us should be able to express Whatever it is. Now, in, in times past, what people would have said is, express yourself in so much as yourself is lining up with what truth is and is helpful for other people. Now the idea would be, I should be able to express, expressive individualism has become the wallpaper of the modern world. That's sex is a right. The next verse kind of describes this same cultural approach to sex as an appetite. It says, the food, it, it says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, this is such a vital concept. And I'm telling you, this is where we really miss it. Because here's the logic. You're thirsty. You need a drink. You're hungry. You need food. You feel sexy, you need sex. That's the logic. But what Paul says is that when you're thirsty, you do have to drink or you die. And when you're hungry, you do need to eat. Your body was made for water. Your body was made to quench its thirst every single day. Your body's made for food. You're thinking that the next step would be, well, you got these cravings. I crave sex. Therefore, the body was made for sex. But he is saying right now, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. While your body is made able to perform sexual acts, your body is actually not made for sexual immorality. Your body is made for water and your body is made for food. Your body is, he says, it is not made for sexual immorality. To which 
begs the question, and well, what is sexual immorality, which is this Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornography, which was a catch-all phrase for all forms of, of anything that would be outside of the bounds of a covenant relationship with another person with whom you have a lifelong commitment where one another is going to serve one another in this thing called marriage. So this is the idea of sex as an appetite. Let me read you from F.F. Bruce, scholar who was describing, he says, Christianity from the outset has sanctified sexual union within a marriage, and outside marriage it has always been forbidden. This was a strange notion in the pagan society. I'm just letting you know that the, the world that Paul is writing to was very much where our world is, maybe even further along in a in a libertarian kind of way. This was a strange notion in the pagan society to which the gospel was first brought. There were various forms of extramarital sexual union that were tolerated and some were even encouraged. A man might have a mistress who could provide him with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it in, um, available for him to have a concubine while casual gratification was available readily through a prostitute. The function of his wife was to manage the household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. There was no body of public opinion to discourage any of this. Although someone who indulged in it to excess might be satirized at some level, um, like a glutton or a drunkard, it was not seen as wrong. In the Roman world, the only thing forbidden was adultery. You're with someone else's spouse. The prostitute was a safety valve for male lust, which was not considered adultery. Slavery and brothels were seen as a vital part of the maintaining the broader sexual propriety by keeping adultery in check. Now, <laughs> did you say everyone must get stoned? <laughs> the cultural approach to sex is toxic. It is toxic. This idea that this is simply an appetite the early Christians come, and if you're kind of thinking, well, they, they, Paul was saying this stuff, but they wouldn't understand. They would very much understand because it was seen as a very normal thing that a man was having lots and lots of outlets, and the scriptures came along and said, if you're not married, no sex at all, and if you are married, only with your spouse. If your spouse can't do something right now, the answer is not right now. That was a wildly counter-cultural phenomenon. What I need you to understand is this. I am in touch with the fact, maybe someone invited you to church and this is your first time you've ever been here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Congratulations on choosing the craziest day to come. But what I need you to understand is, if you're asking right now, hey Mike, are you in touch with how crazy this ethic sounds? My answer is yes. I absolutely understand that this feels so counter to our instincts because we've been told that we are animals, that we need to go drink, and we need to go eat, we need to go have sex, and ultimately, sex in our culture has become an ultimate. A lot of the toxic view of sex is, sex is this ultimate, if, if only I could have great sex, I'd be happy. If a, lot, a lot of us, it's like, if, if only I was in a relationship, if I only had a female, if only I had a husband, if, I, if only I was in this relationship, then, then I would be satisfied. And yet the results of this, this past generation have been, if we're just honest, it's led to unprecedented pain, unprecedented wounding, unprecedented abuse, unprecedented violence, shame. It's the opposite of peace. Let me read you. Again, I'm, just, I'm giving you secular. This is not Christian religious. This is the Wall Street Journal. The sexual marketplace 
which was once strictly regulated, has now been made mostly free. In the West, hookup culture is the normative thing among adolescents and young adults. Louise Perry observes, Today's sexual culture prefers to understand people as free-willing, atomized individuals, all looking out for number one and all out for a good time. It assumes that if all sexual taboos were removed, we would all be liberated and capable of making entirely free choices about our sexual lives. Sampling from a menu of delightful options made newly available by the sexual revolution and the apps that support it. But increasing amounts of research is coming out with very countercultural titles like how the sexual revolution has hurt women in particular. How porn has framed our lives and normalized sexual abuse. Researchers note that studies consistently find that following hookups, women are more likely than men to experience regret, low self-esteem, mental distress. Somosera writes that a growing rape culture that encompasses the derogatory ways that boys spoke about women and girls, the bragging about their sexual conquests, objectifying comments about female bodies, jokes about sexual harassment and sexual assault and slut-shaming, the cumulative effect of making actual sexual harassment, assault, and rape permissible. There can be little doubt what's driving this. She describes uh, growing up misogyny, Sexual harassment, sexual abuse online was normalized amongst my peers. Libraries of nudes of underage girls were shared on Google's drives. Being groped and grabbed at a party was absolutely normal, as were the unwanted advances. A rape joke, sexual bullying, unsolicited pics of males. Uh, the, and there were ex exorbitant pressures on young girls to perform hotness online. The conclusion, porn and unrestrained sex are the wallpaper that framed our lives, normalizing it all. This is the guinea pig generation. This is the guinea pig generation. We know that while even in some school districts they have exposure to porn to teach kids how to do the porn thing. We, we know that the algorithms and the porn itself actually produces greater demand, which is ironic because we will have people that on one day of the week are protesting human trafficking, and on that same day of the week, they're watching pornography, which is, they say, maybe one-third funded or, or pushed by human trafficked individuals. So you've got people that are sitting here saying, we're against slavery, we hate slavery, we're in it to win it, in it to end it, and we're going to go fight human trafficking. But the same people that are fighting human trafficking are, in their very lifestyles, perpetuating the human trafficking, and the pornography itself stirs it up. So that when you do have people getting married, you'll have the people getting married like, wait, what, who, who trained you in this stuff? And the answer is, we've been trained by a pattern of the world, and the scriptures have told us, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every time you look at porn, your brain gets deformed. Every time you have a sexual encounter with someone that you are not in a marriage relationship with, there is a deforming that happens to your soul. According to the scriptures, do not be conformed to this world. This is why it says here, do you not know that verse 16, whoever unites himself with a prostitute is one in body with her. See, there's no such thing as casual sex. Enough of this business. I was, oh, if you, I mean, I did more reading for this than I have in a long time for, I mean, man, to, to read the stories of the girls that would talk about the pain of, I slept with the guy. As soon as we finished, he rode over, took out, picked up his phone and pulled out tender to look for his next conquest. 
Or if you ever watched that movie with Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise years ago after they had had this one night hookup and, and she's like, and he's not understanding. She's like, don't you get it? When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise that your soul has to keep. Does anybody like fireplaces? Aren't fireplaces great? They're warm. Just let's relieve the tension for a minute. They're warm and... <sighs> They're just fun and nice. And Fire is awesome in a fireplace. But if you've got fire on grandpa's comfy chair... Or if you've got fire in your toilet bowl. Or if you've got fire on the dining room table. The same thing, fire, instead of being wonderful and calming and soothing, it's, it's horrible. After last service, the, the fire alarm went off at the end of last service. Someone's like, oh man, you preached the fire, Pastor Mike. I was like, Thanks. It was a kid. My child was running down laughing after this happened. So I was, I had very, very concerned thoughts. But it was a little kid that was in its mother's arms and just somehow pulled the fire alarm. Nobody wants fire in this room right now. No one wants fire in their car while they're driving. My point is, when fire's in the right place, it's an amazing gift. And when fire's in the wrong place, it's a destructive curse. Even if it doesn't feel like, because for a minute, the, the fire on the couch might be like, oh man, this is warm. And you're enjoying it for a minute there. But it's only a matter of time before the house feels the effects of the destruction of what is going on. This is why I'm saying the world's pattern of sex is deforming. My concern is that we parents were like, ah, man, my you know, 13-year-old wants to watch Euphoria. I don't want to be that parent that says no. My, my son wants every app that there is. I don't want to be the one that says no. Or, or you know, like a, a, a college, one someone recently that's like, man, I don't think I should be in a room alone with my computer because I always, but, but I don't want to be that guy that, that's just trying to, that, that's trying to what? Flee from sexual morality. You know, I'm like, what, what is it? And there's this idea, the biblical, I don't want to say traditional. I'm going to say the biblical approach to sex transforms us. The biblical approach to sex transforms us. The world says that sex is very simple. It's a chemical transaction. It's two people. It's, it's like going to a vending machine. You get your water, Dasani, you need water. It's like going to a vending machine. You want some Cheetos, you get your Cheetos. It's like you go to a vending machine. You need some sexual pleasure. There you go. You get your sexual pleasure. But the Bible says that sex is different than food and water. It's different than these are. The Bible says you are not simply a mammal, that you're not simply an animal, that you are a beloved being that was made in the image of God himself, who is a spirit. That you have a body and you are a body at some level, but you are a holistic being and that you are not simply a mammal. You are more like an amphibian. You and I are amphibians. You are amphibians, they're, they're made for the water and they're made for the land. They're made for both. You and I are made for earth, but you were made for heaven. And to act like you've got a body that was made for earth but not heaven is to fail to read this very paragraph that says, do you not know your body is a 
templo. Tu cuerpo es un templo del Espíritu Santo. That your body is, is a temple. The temple is where God shows up. Your body, your physical, I, I get it. See, see what, 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 what the worldly approach to this says, you Christians make too little of sex. No, no, no. We, we do not make too little of sex. We elevate sex. To say that, yes, if something's a, you take out a paper plate, you use it anytime you want because paper plates are made to be trashed. If your body and your sexuality and your soul was a paper plate, God would say, go do whatever you want and throw that thing away. But you're not a paper plate. You're fine china. You were made for special purposes that, that God, which is like, well, well, why can't I just do this anytime or anywhere? Or any, because, because you're not a piece of plastic. You're not styrofoam. You were made in the image of God himself. See, see, everyone close one eye. Close one eye real quick. Just close one. Close one of your eyes. Maybe leave one eye closed. Take your fingers, put them way out there. Try to connect them. Oh, I, I, I can't quite. You ever try to do that? Like, oh, man. Oh, oh wait. Oh, oh. It's kind of weird. It's like, whoa. Now open both eyes. Now try it again. Whoa. Now I connect them. Why? Because I'm looking with 3D, not 2D. Because I've got the perspective of both eyes. I need not be surprised when, when the world speaks only from the world's pattern. It's only got one eye open. But you and I are meant to look at things from, wait, yeah, you've got a body. You're made for this earth. This earth matters. This world matters. But you were also made for heaven. You're also made for God. You're also, you're made to live on this earth, but to live with God, that, that you do life with God, that you're not, you're not using one eye. You don't have an eye patch on, that, that you're made, to, some of us might, but you know what I'm saying, like for the most part, just don't do this, right? So for the most part, we're sitting here, we're doing this, we're like, man, we man, what's up with all this, the, the me too? What's up with all the sexual assault? Why is this sexual assault happening? What's up with this rape culture? What's up with all the misogyny? What's up? Well, the answer is, when you tell people they're animals, stop being surprised when they act like it. Well, I'm just a dog in heat. No, you're more than a dog in heat. That's a lie. You are a child of the most high God. So the biblical approach, let me tell you what the biblical approach to marriage, let me, let me when the Bible says about sex, it says there is a purpose. What, what are some of the purposes of sex? God says in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. So one purpose of sex, let's just get real clear, is to reproduce. That's one purpose of sex, is reproducing, all right? God made sex to reproduce. We are in the first generation where people think it's an absolute right to be able to have sex, and I should not have to even be thinking about that reproduction's a possibility. I just need you understanding that has never been the case in all of human history until very recently, okay? Biblically speaking, one of the purposes is reproduction. That's not the only one, though. Another purpose of sex is, we find it right here in this passage when it says, that the two will become, in verse 16, the two will become one flesh. Well, this is going back to the book of Genesis when it says, for this purpose, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become, what is it? This is the principle of oneness. The two will become one. One of the purposes of sex. Now, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here because to understand what makes something immoral 
is when something goes against what it was designed to do. Sex is designed, it's designed for reproduction, but obviously it's not just that because sex still happens even when people can't reproduce anymore, which lets you know that, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll skip ahead to number three. Pleasure, all right? All right, there is, there is a pleasure that's there. But this oneness, this is the, the, the Hebrew word echad. Everyone say echad. This is the idea of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord's your God. The Lord is one. It's the same word that gets used for a man will leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become echad. Marriage and sex are pointing to something. They, they, they're, they're signposts that are, they are pointing to the very image of God himself, who is echad. When sex gets used in a way that's outside of it, so there's, there's a, a oneness. That's why when someone has a hookup culture, when someone's living in it or living out a hookup lifestyle, I'm just letting you know, sex is designed. You, you can't help it. Like, let me read you a little quote. Um, the evidence just tells us, describes what happens when someone has sex. This is the science. This is not Christian. This is the science. Uh, when someone has sex with someone, it releases neurotransmitters and hormones. Dopamine intensifies the sensation of romantic love. Oxytocin, vasopressin, deepen emotional attachments with whoever you are with at that moment of climax. In other words, 2,000 years ago, the Bible was telling you when it says whoever joins himself, like you'll hear, and, and again, this, this phrase soul ties gets all sorts of um, like bad press right now, especially sort of in the like ex-evangelical community or something like that. I'm like, you've probably heard about soul ties. Well, what I'm, what I'm letting you know is, biblically speaking, the Bible would say that these scientists are telling the truth when they say, when you connect with someone sexually, physiologically at the neurotransmitting level, there is something that's happening neurologically with you connecting with someone because sex was meant to bind people together. Any of you that are married, you already know how this works. There are times you're like, you cannot explain it. You're like, oh, it's good for us to be together. It wasn't even just the pleasure. You're like, well, it's the pleasure. No, there are things besides even just the pleasure. There's a oneness that you have with someone that is deeply committed to you like that. I'll tell you a fourth one, though, that I think is just so vital to understand. A fourth purpose of sex is giving. Exactly. That child came as a witness. Thank you. That's a witness. Thank you. Gracias. Be because there is pleasure and because of the culture we live in, which is a consumeristic culture, I mean, let's face it, we, we, we stay with an insurance company as long as it's in our best interest. We go to a church as long as our needs are getting met. We, we, we go to a store as long as our needs are getting met. Everywhere we go, it's all about, number one, it's all about, are your needs being met? We, we, then we do the same exact thing sexually here. Where we're like, well, it's all about my needs getting met. Are my needs getting met? Are you meeting my needs? Are you meeting my needs as well as what I saw in porn? Are you meeting my needs as, man, I don't know if I'm having the most wild, amazing, incredible, all this. I've even had people say, I waited until I was married. Dang it. I waited until I was married. I thought I'd get a promise that I'd have the wildest, greatest, most amazing, whatever. And I'm like, wait, wait, who, who told you this? Like, well, churches, they told me I'd get a money back guarantee. I'm like, well, <laughs> I've got swamp land for you. I got some of that too. 
But it's interesting because right just one chapter over in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, it says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body but yields to the husband in the same way the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, this is a wild thing to me. Number one, this has gotten wildly only applied to women to tell women, you gotta meet your husband's needs. Uh, let, husbands, let me say, the first thing he actually says is this. Husbands, you gotta meet your wife's needs. You're supposed to meet your wife's needs. Well, I, I always meet her needs. Mm. Oh, trust me. Oh, trust me. <laughs> this might be the best sermon you ever had today. Well, how can I know? Ask her. I don't want to be inappropriate, but like we do meetings in our church. Almost every meeting I do, I ask people, okay, let's rate that meeting scale one to five. If someone says three, I say, okay, cool, three. Why not four? Why not two? Well, that, that, that's kind of helpful. Might be good for a lot of marriages, just to be like after a good date or something like that. Hey, baby, how would you rate that? One to five. And she says two? Listen. <laughs> She's like, oh, trust me. No, no, what I do know is this. Men and women are different. And this will come out more next week as we're talking about things. But men and women are different, which means God has made us where we are pleased in different ways. And there's different things that happen. But here's how it happens. Sex was created to be giving, not getting. The purpose of sex is not for you to get yours. The purpose of sex is for you to give yours. Acts says, according to Jesus, it is better to give than to receive. Anyone that's ever been in a good marriage with a good sex life, you know this is true. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom priorities. And all these other things that you desire will be added unto you. Same thing happens in marriage, big time. Totally happens in sex. When you seek first their desires, seek first her pleasure, seek first your wife's desires, your wife's cravings, seek for When that is the, the priority here is seek first that. The biblical model is all the stuff you ever wanted is going to follow after that. That's what the Bible says, which is why the purpose of sex, which, which is giving, according, again, by the way, I was reading something this week that they, there was a quote. They said, the first sexual revolution in human history was actually pulled off by Christians. The passage I just read to you, by the way, where it says, oh, husbands, meet the needs of your wives. No one ever talked like that in all of human history. In a patriarchal world, everyone said, yeah, women need to meet the needs of men. Do you realize how revolutionary this was to say, oh, husbands, it's not just that your wife's body belongs to you. Your body belongs to her. There's been all this abuse where men have been able to take these passages and try to twist them into saying, yeah, woman, you got you to do what I say. Well, she could actually, yeah, man, you got to do what I say. At least biblically. I'm, all I'm telling you is the biblical approach is wildly leveling of the playing field and it comes to where in a culture where you say you try to go get yours, instead you're trying to give. The key to life is not getting. The key to life is giving. It's giving. This is why the biblical approach is transforming. By the way, this is why sex outside of marriage does not just get using the word pornea, which is the word, this, this word pornea is, is this idea of, you know, of sexual immorality in general. There are other words, like there's a word defrauding. One of the words that gets used is the word defrauding. Do not defraud your neighbor. To defraud means to take something from them. Listen carefully to me. 
whether they know it or not, every single time you have sex with someone you're not married to, you are taking something from them instead of giving something to them. The, the final purpose of sex is what you would call imaging. Sex itself is not just about sex. It's, it's pointing to something else. Tim Keller said, the male and female bodies, male and female persons have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be a way of mingling the strengths and glories in the lifelong covenant of marriage. Sex is ultimately pointing. It is pointing to something. You and I long to be utterly vulnerable and utterly exposed and utterly naked and yet utterly loved. When marriage goes right, it goes like this. I'm tech checking you out. I'm checking you out. I'm testing you out. I'm checking you out. My community's checking you out. Do I want to say yes? Do I want to say yes? When every, all the parties finally say yes, you say, I am unconditionally forever and ever committed to you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not bail on you. When you get chunky, I'm still with you. When you get warts, I'm still with you. No matter what it is. I'm going to be with you. When you are in that context, you now come into a marriage bed where you are utterly exposed, utterly known, utterly seen, and utterly loved and accepted. That is the way you are wired to thrive. And that is what happens in the gospel. Because in the gospel, it's the one place that recognizes we were naked in the garden and unashamed. And when sin came, we started hiding. Because we know if people saw our chunky rolls, if people saw our warts, if people saw the parts of us that don't look so good, they wouldn't like us so much. So we buy clothes that make us look good and we put on makeup that, that you know, fixes up the barn and, and, we, and we do things and, and we say things in a way that makes us look better than we are because we don't want people to really know the real us because if they saw the real us, they wouldn't love the real us. And God says, I see the real you, I know the real you, and I love the real you, and I accept the real you. To which we say, yeah, but I'm dirty. He says, yeah, but I cleaned you by my blood. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm unwanted. Oh, no, you are wanted by me. This is why I love that sermon last week with the woman at the, at the well, that Samaritan woman who comes thirsty, full of her water jars, and she talks to Jesus, the Messiah, and he says, oh, lady, you're, you're not just thirsty for water. You're thirsty for something on the inside that nothing can meet. And she's like, yeah, it's true, but where am I going to find it? He's like, it's me. It's all going to come in me. And when that whole thing ends, I don't know if you remember, but my favorite part of the story, she's got these water pots that were for her cooking and her cleaning and her drinking and her bathing and she leaves her water pots and runs back to her place to go tell everyone about Jesus. Why? She, just a few minutes earlier, she's probably dying of thirst. Why wasn't she still thirsty? And the answer is because when you have an encounter with Jesus, he has a way of changing your thirst and quenching your thirst and changing your life. What? Well, how could Jesus do that? I'll tell you how Jesus could do that because he's going to go up on a cross where he's going to be there and one of the things he's going to say on a cross is, I thirst. I get you. I know you. And there's some of you that, that came here this, this weekend and, 
And maybe this has even been uncomfortable, and I'm not trying to do that, but maybe there's been mistakes in your past, or maybe there's been pain, or maybe there's been things done to you, or maybe there's a shame, or maybe there's a a confusion. And, And I'm not trying to stir all that up, but maybe you've got questions like, would God receive me? And I'm just letting you know. Jesus Christ goes on a cross where he sheds his blood. And I don't know how this works, but he claims that blood makes us clean. There are some of you that even walked in and there's been a dirtiness or a a, a filthiness that you have felt or a, a guilt or a shame. And I'm letting you know, when you walk out the exit doors, you're gonna be completely clean. How can he do that? Because he was stripped down naked. He was made utterly vulnerable, utterly naked, utterly exposed, utterly shamed. And he was put up on a cross where he says, I am gonna cover you. Mike, what do you want me to do with this sermon? I'll tell you what I want you to do. I mean, first thing is I want you to reject the patterns of this world. If you have been holding on to the pattern, sex is a right, give that up. Sex is an appetite, give that up. I I should do whatever I want to do with my own body. Your body's not your own. You were bought with a price. Reject the patterns of this world. Second thing is renew your mind. We, We read it at the very beginning. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Parents, your kids don't need it. You're not being a... Some, you're not being some prude for not letting your kids watch everything. There is a reality in which when you get exposed to things, it arouses desires you did not know were there before. You never had sushi, someone lets you taste sushi, now everywhere you go, you want sushi. There's something about don't awaken love before it's time. There's, there's nothing good about, well, I'm just going to let my kids see every kind of porn there ever was, and he'll just watch it with me, and that'll be the end of it. No, that'll be the beginning of it. Same thing with you. There is something about, you know, another word here is run. That when you get tempted, run. Everyone say run. Some kid comes up to you, one of you's in middle school. Some kid comes up, hey man, you want to check out? I got got a picture of, you know, when he, run. You should say run. Mike, if I run, Pastor Mike, if I run, I'm going to get a detention. I'd rather you get a detention running away from some naked pic on someone's phone in your middle school and your parents are going to be okay. If not, let them come talk to Pastor Mike. All right? You run. You're in a car with a guy, and you're in the, guy, in the car with that guy, and your boyfriend leans over, kind of stops, and he's like, hey, you know, if, if you love me, you'll let me, and, and you're just kind of like, oh, and you want to. You want to. You're dating him, obviously. It's like, you're like, you want to. Jump out of the car, not moving. Jump out of the car. Go call an Uber. You're like, don't call. No, I don't need to do that. You know, you do need to. I didn't struggle so much with this, but Ruthie did when we were dating. She struggled a lot with keeping her hands off of me, and... I could handle it, but in deference to her. (laughs) The Bible says run. It says flee sexual, flee from sexual immorality. All the other sins. In other words, it's saying different sins. There's some sins you can kind of resist or do something in your your seat right there. Sometimes you got to run. You're watching a movie and it's stirring something up. I'm sorry. Well, I already paid $15 for a movie. Just get up and leave. I would rather lose $15, be faithful to Jesus... And to walk in his ways, to just sit there and say, well, I was a good steward of my money. Okay. The world's pattern of sex is deforming. The biblical pattern of sex is transforming and redeeming. I want you to open both of your eyes. And ultimately, I want you to receive the gospel because he says, you were bought with a price. Some of you are hurting. And I want you healed even some today. Some of you are victims and you might need to be advocated for. 
Some of you need to hear this. It wasn't your fault. And we hate what someone might have done to you. And so does God. You did not bring it on yourself. It's not because of what you were wearing or the way that you spoke to them. Those are lies. Some of you feel unclean because you know you've been full of sin. Maybe someone's wondering, will God receive me? My answer is a thousand times yes. Jesus was crucified, tortured and beaten, died on a cross and rose from the dead so you could be healed, forgiven, and changed forever. And I don't know how it works, but I know that when people call to him, he answers. When they cry out to him, he heals. When they confess to him, he forgives. And there's someone that needs to hear this. If anyone is in Jesus Christ, they become a new creature. The old is gone and the new has come. Hey, thanks for being a part. Thanks for watching today. I wanted to give you a few resources of where you could go from here. I'm indebted today to John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York, as well as Tim Keller, um, as well for things that they have brought to the table on this subject as well as Sam Alberry, who is an author. And let me just give you a few books that I have found to be incredibly helpful. Uh, one of those is a book called Divine Sex. If you would like to get some of the historical backdrop of where we are right now, that is a fantastic book, Divine Sex. Uh, the book, The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregory has been very, very helpful um, for those that are in marriage. Uh, the the um, the book by Sam Alberry, What Does Why Does God Care About Who I Sleep With? I found to be incredibly helpful. And then Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Um, but more than anything else, I, I want to just throw out to you, if you didn't watch the first sermon in this sermon series about the Bible and how the scriptures themselves become the ultimate authority, with all of my heart, I encourage you to place the scriptures, the Bible, as your place of final authority, whether it's on um, sexuality or on conflict or on anything else that's going on in your life. Um, but if by chance you find yourself in a, in a place where maybe you need prayer or maybe you need counseling, please feel very free to reach out to our church, reach out to our staff. Um, and even right now, I want to pray that the blessing and the peace of Jesus will be with you as you walk in his truth and his love. Amen.